Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of SwiftCast on the Air. We're your hosts, Caesar Devers and Clay McElrath. We are joined today by Jameson Quave of www.jamesonquave.com. Hey, Jameson. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for coming on. Yeah, sure. Thanks for inviting me. No problem. I'm sure a lot of you out there have done some of Jameson's Swift tutorials uh, from the summer. If you were around when Swift was just announced after WWDC, Jameson had some of the first written tutorials that really seemed to get a lot of viral spread, right, Jameson? Yeah, yeah, that's definitely true. Uh, just putting them out there kind of early, I think uh, we got a lot of attention. Uh, it really helped a lot of people, too. Uh, definitely a ton of feedback. Awesome. So I think that everybody, I think a lot of people who are listening have read some of your stuff or at least recognized your name. You're kind of one of the early figures in the community. So I think it would be great to kind of get a little background from you about how you got to where you are making Swift tutorials and making iOS apps. Just some background so our readers can get a little information behind that name they see so much. Sure. Yeah, so, you know, I actually started a mobile development company, you know, right as the SDK came out for iOS. So I spent a lot of time uh, recruiting people uh, as well as writing the code myself. So it was sort of like this process that we had to go through. We hired these people for this new technology that no one really knew that well. And we had to kind of help train them and coach them to kind of get them to a place where they could, you know, ship apps. So I kind of draw from that experience and just sort of write it, you know, uh, sorry, started writing Objective-C tutorials a while back. And then when Swift came out, I just kind of saw it as an opportunity to sort of reinvent and uh, have the website be a location for Swift tutorials. So, you know, there's definitely a lot of benefit from that experience. Um, I also spent a lot of time tutoring in college, and I've always kind of been on the side of things where I like educating others. So it just seemed natural for me. Great. So, Jameson, how long have you been actually making apps? Obviously before Swift, but what's kind of your career been in the iOS world? Yeah, you know, I don't know the exact date, but uh, the answer is they had uh, the SDK come out, and then I started writing on the SDK. So it was, it was <laughs> you know, no one outside of uh, Apple has been doing it longer, just, just as long. Um, I think that was in 2008 or 2009, but it, it was the same day. Yeah. So, so pre, pre-iPhone? Uh, well, I worked on Objective-C pre-iPhone, but, you know, it was, you know, the iPhone SDK came out after the iPhone had been out for a while. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was, it was pretty much that day. But it was pre-iPad and certainly pre-Apple Watch. What was the Objective-C world like before the iPhone? Um, I guess it was... More like C for me. I, I, maybe that was just me not knowing Objective C that well, but it was. It, I just saw it as an extension of like C or C plus plus, which I had worked in before. Mm-hmm. Except it had these weird, you know, square brackets everywhere, <laughs> uh, which you know scares a lot of people off. But I don't know. I just kind of saw it as a, a syntactical difference that didn't matter too much. But um, you know, the the community was definitely a lot smaller. It was mm-hmm. definitely a lot more, uh, you know, I want to say religious. Like these people were married to Apple if they were Objective-C developers. Right. It, they weren't just doing it because they had an iPhone. They were hardcore, you know, Apple people. The, you know, it's funny. The square brackets 
definitely scared me off. I remember looking at um, iPhone stuff around around maybe like the iPhone 3GS, so a little bit later, obviously, than you started. But I remember coming from web stuff, looking at it, and just seeing the ridiculously long method names and, and class names and the square brackets and just thinking, nope, not that's not going to happen. Not right now. And I think a lot of uh, Swift developers actually come from a different language, and now they see Swift as more inviting for a bunch of different reasons. But I think that's that's some of it, right, Clay? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I wasn't turned off completely by the square brackets uh, alone. And there were some things I loved about Objective-C in the early days, you know, like the method names that kind of would say something, something with, and your first parameter would be, you know, kind of not named. Um, you know, just that, that to me was kind of convenient. It was just more... Um, the concept of like rather than calling things methods or functions like you did in other languages, let's let's call it messages. And you know, there's kind of some a little bit of it was hard to speak to other Objective C de developers if you really didn't get the uh, the lingo down. You know, and Apple really kind of brought their own lingo to the table, and there wasn't really it, it wasn't always the same as what you saw in other programming languages. So, a bit difficult there. Yeah. So I think one of the probably most insightful things that Jameson, you could hopefully talk to us about is this idea of a gold rush that comes from a new hardware device or a new platform. I'm sure all of us recall when the iPhone first launched, there was, you know, every store, every week, if you read the Wall Street Journal, there'd be some some guy or some 18-year-old or somebody who released like the flashlight app that was 99 cents and everyone got it because it was one of the first apps or people released the fishbowl app that didn't do anything. People still bought it, that kind of thing. And I think we saw that with each hardware release, um, the iPad being a good example, that there was this novelty around a new Apple hardware device that we're kind of seeing now with the Apple Watch. So as someone who was there for, I guess, the first Apple hardware gold rush, Jameson, maybe you could talk to us about what's similar, in your opinion, what's different, and I guess your experience tackling the iPad and what you plan to do for this next one. So it's interesting. I mean, I think the first iPhone, you know, the first iPhone SDK, there was a gold rush where no one knew that there was a gold rush. Like it, it kind of happened, you know, or it would happened in real time. So mm -hmm. there were people that just put out apps because they were interested or they would just wanted to kind of dip their toe in development for the first time or, or you know, whatever the reason. And then they would get a million downloads and then they get another million. And then, the, you know, it shows up in the wall street journal or something. Right. And people are like, Oh wow. You know, this guy, what a genius, you know, just kind of <laughs> jumped on it. And I think they are all just kind of like surprised and, um, you know, it kind of started building upon itself. And I think that's when a lot of people really got interested. Um, and, you know, decided I'm going to learn objective C I'm going to build an app. I'm going to be one of these guys and sell millions of copies. But, you know, over time it's kind of played out that, that doesn't just putting out an app doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to make a bunch of money. Even during the gold rush periods of time, uh, you know, because because I I was one of those people that's like, okay, you know, this game I, I forget what it was called, but it was like a top down you know vampire shooter kind of thing, mm -hmm. and it was you know selling like a million copies. Um, so I made something similar, 
and it did not sell a million copies. <laughs> you know, this was like in 2008 during the gold rush, and it sold maybe 20 copies or something. It, like no one got this game. Funny how that um, works, right? Yeah, <laughs> and I don't really know what the difference was. I mean, I guess it was luck. I mean, the game was pretty much the same. Maybe it was the fact that I had basically copied, you know, someone else's gameplay. But uh, no way. You know, that couldn't be it. There's no way. <laughs> well, if that was true, then you wouldn't see, uh, you know, Flappy Bird clones showing up today as Definitely. the top apps. It's sure. it's really not, you know, a market that uh, that frowns upon cloning, uh, unfortunate as that is. So that initial gold rush was kind of a lot of people just trying it out and getting lucky. Mm-hmm. When the iPad kind of came around, like everybody knew there was going to be a gold rush. It was sort of like, you know, take two. Everybody gets, you know, another shot at being part of this. Uh, now that it's kind of passed with the original iPhone. So when the iPad SDK was announced, the iPad device was, you know, obviously not available yet. So we were kind of working blind. Uh, Anybody who wanted to be a part of this had to accept the fact that all you've got is the simulator. So we were kind of taking it from a different, you know, angle because with the iPhone SDK, you know, even if you were the first person who had the SDK, you at least had the device. So it was kind of like a different type of gold rush. And, and in this gold rush, we were kind of working blind. Um, so I was one of the people that actually said, you know, screw it. I'm going to make an app and I'm going to, I'm going to put it on the iPad and upload it to Apple sight unseen. And uh, mm-hmm. I got to say that worked really well. Like yeah. that, you know, it, it got a lot of downloads immediately and it was, you know, it was a it was a really simple app that did almost nothing that was just kind of funny and I was charging three bucks for it and I mean it got a ton of downloads like immediately it, but because if you got an iPad on day one what are you gonna do you're gonna right. go download a bunch of apps I mean it's the first thing you're gonna want to do uh, and then that's when you found my app mm-hmm. because there was you know twenty other apps a lot of Not competition. Too. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it only took like a week or two for that to completely change because there was all these people that were waiting for the hardware to come out. Right. So once they got their hands on it, that's when they were like, okay, I tested it on the hardware and now I'm going to ship it. And it's like, oh, well, you're too late now. Yeah. You're late to the party. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my app was already, you know, number one. And then when it went universal, because it was initially iPad only, then mm-hmm. it shot to, you know, the top position on the iPhone for a while. Um, and it's, you know, even today, years later, that app gets more downloads than everything else I have ever released. And it's not even a very good app. It's just kind of like, you know, being at the right place at the right time, I guess. Right. I, you know, I think that that's, that awareness is becoming more and more uh, common each release. I, I wouldn't be surprised if right now you have like a, for the Apple Watch, you'd have a three-hour window to be one of the first. And then, you know, it's over. I think that that level of understanding that, being first, being seen, and being out there as one of the early um, offerings for a nascent market has so much value. I think we see the same thing with um, we talk about like SEO and things. Just having a site that's been there for a while and was one of the first has a lot of value. So I guess you've really uh, done a good job of being there first. I mean, you're one of the first with the Swift tutorials too. So it's uh, it's done well for you, right? Yeah, I think they actually call that the first mover advantage, but, you know, I, I, I don't have an MBA or anything, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure that's what that's called. So, you know, there's kind of a lot of ways to be, um, you know, to, to kind of beat out the rest of the competition, and, mm-hmm. and the easiest one is just being there early. Um, 
But if you don't follow it up with quality, there does tend to be sort of, uh, you know, uh, an exodus away from, you know, like, for example, from my site. Um, <laughs> yeah. We, we kind of had this moment where it was like, okay, we've put out a lot of stuff really fast. And a lot of it is now breaking because Swift is changing. So we have to take care of the people that are that are all driven to the site because it was here first. So you know we had to go back one by one and start saying, okay, well this tutorial was updated on this date. It works with this version, and you know I had to get some other people on board to help me make that happen. Mm-hmm. And now you know it's kind of known less as the site that was there first and more as the site that is uh, frequently updated. That that even <laughs> the old stuff is going to be up to date. Yeah. So we kind of we kind of shift from first mover to you know the most frequently updated mm. and it's funny because um, I remember this moment where I started seeing uh, the Ray Winderlich website started getting the same update like it, like they they were basically like taking the same idea and just doing that <laughs> I mean it's, it's it's kind of like oh why is my site better than this site oh because we updated yeah right and then they started updating it so there's kind of like this third thing that needs to happen now, and I'm not sure what that is. But I mean, at the end of the day, it's a big market, and mm-hmm. a lot of it is about SEO. Yeah, um, people are going to find stuff because they're looking for a specific solution, and uh, there's just a lot to cover. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think updating is one of the one of the biggest challenges so far with Swift instructional content. I mean, you've had entire books published. Right, Clay, yep. that now have uh, now need to go back and, and, and do a good amount of editing just because the language is changing so much. Oh, yeah, keeping up with uh, the, the beta releases. I mean, I'm glad that Swift is rapidly developing and, and seeing such an aggressive release schedule. But, man, does it make content editing a pain. Um, our book is in second revision, and Swift 1.2 just came out as we were finishing the revision. Um, well, granted, it's still in beta, but will probably be released uh, in a matter of, you know, what, a week, couple weeks. Yeah. You know, so we're already having to start in on revision three of the book. Um, and, and the book was written while Swift as a whole was in beta still. So the, the book comes out and everyone that uh, basically was jumping into Swift, you know, downloaded it and we're really excited. And now, you know, immediately we're having to go through and just keep up with those breaking changes. So we haven't been able to go to any kind of a, a print because it just doesn't make sense, you know, and uh, it's published through O'Reilly, which is, you know, a great publisher. And we would love to see it in print. But, you know, how do you print something that's rapidly changing and will be outdated in a month? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. Yeah. yeah, we had pretty much the same experience. I mean, we're actually going to, we're supposed to be publishing the book through No Starch Press, which is actually distributed by O'Reilly as well. Um, but when it comes down to actually making the print, I just, I can't make that call right now knowing how much it's changing. Right. Mm-hmm. So what are your, what are your thoughts on Apple Watch? What, what makes this different from the iPad? What makes it similar? And if, if we love to speculate on this podcast because it's fun. Um, and it's rare that we're at a point where it's so – we're definitely um, – we're unsure about a lot of things. If you remember the iPad, it took probably five years for it to kind of level off in sales. And when, before the iPad was released, there were a lot of naysayers, um, a lot of people who thought that the market as a whole wouldn't adopt this whole second device that is in between your phone and your laptop and doesn't really do – it doesn't – it doesn't make portability 
any easier or better than your phone, and it's not as powerful as your laptop. And a lot of um, even good analysts on Wall Street or tech writers weren't really sure about the adoption curve. And then we saw it blow up and then level off. And I think that it would be nice if five years later we could look back and say, man, we were wrong, or wow, we just totally missed the mark. Yeah, I really think there's kind of uh, a, a pattern with Apple. Mm-hmm. Not just with the analyst, but even you know people that are really uh, kind of futurist and, and and you know they care a lot about bleeding edge technology. There tends to be this pattern of just saying, "Oh, well, I think this is the moment where Apple turns around and you know puts out a crappy product that no one's going to want." Mm-hmm. And they seem to always be wrong. Um, I think in this case, you know, we've got this this change in the leadership at Apple. And people are kind of more, you know, in a position where they want to question their decisions. You know, there's kind of, there's been a problem with the software quality declining. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when you see that iPhone 6 with the camera kind of sticking out of the, of the, the, the device, you kind of yeah. have to wonder, is there a quality problem? And if there is, how does that play into this kind of speculation about the Apple Watch? Mm-hmm. I mean, plenty of people are going to buy the Apple Watch. You know, I have no doubt. I just, I don't know... I, I kind of feel like I'm one of those people in that camp where I'm like, I'm not sure if this thing's actually, you know, going to work. Yeah, I'm I'm in that camp as we, we recorded one of the podcasts over the summer when Apple Watch was first announced and I was railing against it pretty heavily. Not so much it I, I just I still haven't seen that kind of uh must buy use case. But then again, I didn't see it for the iPad. I'm not sure that that's necessary for um for Apple products and, you know, and I think that especially in the first world, we have so much, we have so much capacity to have all of these different devices. It might not even matter. Um, but we haven't gotten Clay's thoughts on the Apple watch on the podcast, have we? No, it's funny. I was supposed to chime in anyways. Um, it's interesting. I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum. When the iPad first came out, I thought, meh, I don't really need this. It's not something I would use. And, uh, you know, here I am years later, I've owned a few iPads and, you know, actually my first predictions were, were right. Um, I just ended up buying an iPad because, mm-hmm. um, and I've had it, it's had its use for sure. You know, I like to read books on it and, um, there are some advantages to it, but the watch I feel completely differently about. And it's, it's interesting to me that so many writers are predicting, uh, that, you know, the watch is kind of more of a luxury product and not really a must have. And then it's not so much a utility as people are thinking it, but I've, I've loved the wearables market so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, every time there's a new wearable, I'm wanting to buy it, you know, and I've had the gear fit and, uh, the Nike, you know, uh, Nike plus wristband and a lot of these, uh, a lot of these wearables. And what I've found is that the data is awesome. I'm very curious about the data. I want to know about my health and activity and, uh, even just some of the utilities behind it. Um, but the real issue is not in the devices in most cases. It's actually in the data itself. There's no there's no standard. Um, and Apple really has the potential. I think by releasing all the SDKs they did mm-hmm. this last summer, um, there's so much potential with like things like HealthKit uh, and HomeKit to really standardize some of these, uh, the Internet of Things world. And the Apple Watch to me is kind of like that first quality product that leverages all of those SDKs and really starts to connect them in a way that is useful. So for me, like 
the minute the watch is announced, I'm going and buying one, you know, pre-order or if it's in stores, I'm running out and getting one. And that'll be the first time. I've never been a, you know, let's wait till midnight, get the first right. product. But I, I think for the watch, I will just because for me personally, there's just something there that really has me, I mean, just hook, line and sinker and I, I want it. So <laughs> we'll see. It's, it's interesting to me that the market is so divided and, and people are on such opposite ends of the spectrum. There really doesn't seem to be a lot of middle ground right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so too. I think the only thing you can say for sure right now is that they will sell a lot of these, at least initially. Oh, yeah. And there is going to be a market for selling apps. Even if it's short-lived, uh, it's worth doing. Definitely. I mean, I think if you're trying to develop a paid app um, on Apple Watch is definitely something that you should invest in if you can do it early on. I will say this, though. Don't you think it's, it's a little different from the iPad because there are no native apps for Apple Watch yet? So a lot of the established players, the you know the best utility apps for iPhone will have their extensions, and I think they have a lot of buy-in um, from the people that have their iPhone app versions. Whereas I think for the iPad... There was there were there were fewer. The, the the difference in experience between the iPhone and iPad versions wasn't strong enough for you to get both versions. Whereas I think because it's more of an extension, there might be already there might be an established kind of leaderboard in the market before the market actually you know exists. Yeah, I think there's always the risk of you know an incumbent showing up a big Facebook or, or something like that, just kind of showing up and dominating the charts right away. Um, and, and that's something you have to contend with. But, you know, I never really shoot for the top 10 list. What, mm-hmm. what I shoot is for, let me get in the top 1,000, because that's much more achievable and it's much more realistic. Yeah, so then let's let's uh, get into your playbook then. What You've, you've obviously deployed a lot of apps. Um, I know that you've done a lot of contract work apps you've you've launched a lot of apps into the app store and i think that's contrary to what a lot of our audience has done because obviously we're we're teaching developers new developers old developers um there's plenty of developers who work for a company that makes one app and they maintain that app so i think there's something to be learned from somebody who has deployed a lot of apps in the context of kind of a more entrepreneurial side. So how do you mm-hmm. get to be in the top 1,000? And what does that, what does that get you tangibly? Like why would someone shoot for that? So my position is if you can get into the top 10, that's, you know, that's great. That's fantastic. Um, but, I, you know, it's unrealistic. Like it, it's, mm-hmm. it, it's probably not going to happen. It's kind of like trying to be a famous movie star. Um, but what you can do pretty reliably is get in that top 1,000. And even if it's the top 10,000, there is still money to be made there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, I have, I have apps that, you know, I'm profiting from that aren't even on the list. They don't even, you know, register on the radar because there's this small community of people who, you know, use it every day mm-hmm. or something like that. There's a lot to be said for, for just doing okay. There's so much focus in the startup world and in the uh, app development world on the, on the top players that mm-hmm. I feel like it's completely ignored that you can do just okay and <laughs> do that a couple of times and then you're doing really well. Right. So <laughs> I just, there doesn't need to be such a focus on being the best ever. Mm-hmm. So would you say, I'm curious on that note, um, I, I kind of like to describe uh, the marketplaces. You could either go kind of shallow and wide 
you know, meaning you, you maybe release uh, more apps that are maybe of a mediocre, still useful, not necessarily a clone, but still kind of useful, but not also like the, the other approach, which is kind of narrow and deep. Uh, and you, you focus on entirely like one application and you make that your bread and butter in your business. What approach do you think is, is more attainable um, in terms of market growth and kind of for the freelance uh, kind of developer versus somebody who wants to build a, an entire business around it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely easier to go, uh, what do you say, shallow, right? Yeah, kind of shallow and wide. Yeah, I mean that's going to be easier because here's the here's the thing. Uh, let's say I do want to go deep on a, a single application. I'm going to spend, you know, three months wireframing it, six months in development with a you know iterative testing cycle to make it the best app that anyone has ever apped. Right. So I'm going <laughs> to yeah. I'm going to take this and I'm going to go out in the app store and then maybe it takes off, but probably it doesn't. Right. But if it does, you're going to make a lot of money. And a week later, a clone is going to show up. And right. that's just the nature of this market. And if a clone doesn't show up, Apple's going to take it. They're going to Sherlock it, right? They're going to take that functionality and bake it into the OS. There's, there's always you know, going to be a problem if you put all your eggs in one basket. Mm-hmm. That makes so sense. So I would advise everyone to, to you know, kind of, I, I want to say, diversify your investments. In, 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 in this case, your investment is your time. Right. That's, that's a great point. Great insight. Yep. All right. So aim for doing just okay is going to be the part of the title of this podcast. Oh, uh, no. <laughs> that's not really – that's not the, the main message I'm trying to send. I think you can do very well by doing yeah. lots of things just okay. Of course. Um, no, yeah. I'm being a little facetious. What um, – if you had to, I guess, give some – advice on finishing apps this might sound a little weird but i know i had this problem and i know a lot of people that i also that i know have this issue of just finishing something i know that it seems it's it's hard to consciously aim to do okay i don't think anyone actually wants to do okay right you want to create a product that is great um and sometimes it's difficult to get it across the line you keep adding features you get feature creep and i think when you're new to development that's one of the things that can really hinder you. Um, I think somebody who has more experience knows that you, you a lot of times you've got to release it. And no matter how hard you work on it, when it's actually out there and you have real users, there are going to be things that you couldn't have possibly planned for. So what if you, do you have any insight on just finishing and deploying? Yeah. Um, I have never released something that I was happy with. And the reason <laughs> is because... I set a hard deadline and I say, I need it to be done at this point. And that doesn't mean I need to get everything I want done by that point. It means I need to ship it. And whatever state it's in, that's when I'm going to ship it. Mm -hmm. Um, If I don't have that deadline, I will work on it forever because I am actually kind of a perfectionist with that kind of thing. If I didn't have this discipline to say, I have to ship on this date, I would just never ship anything. Right. Um, So you put something out there and people are going to complain, like you said, no matter how much time you spend perfecting it, there's always going to be something you didn't think about. And and really the best way, in my opinion, to develop software, you know, people talk about being agile and iterating and things like that. Th- that involves a part where you put it out there and get feedback. 
Mm -hmm. That's the most important part. So if you sit there, you know, just kind of working on something in your basement, you never tell anybody about it, you know, you're not going to know if it's good. So that's a good good point. But I'm curious, like I've heard other people uh, with successful apps say, make sure your first release is is good enough. Like that's it's not going to crash and people aren't going to hate it because it's buggy because reviews are permanent and kind of for life. So if version one gets rated, you know, a bunch of one stars and then version two is awesome, you're still going to have those those ratings bringing you down. So I'm curious, do you think that that's still relevant? Because that I think I heard probably a few years ago. And so I don't know how the rating uh, system is still kind of applies or if, if new versions have maybe some kind of algorithm or, or um, kind of compartmentalized uh, rating, but do you think that that still applies to the ecosystem now? I mean, I think there's a basic level of, you know, if your app is crashing and it's crashing doing the one thing it is supposed to do, then maybe you shouldn't release it yet. I mean, you you do have to draw that line somewhere. A lot of people talk about MVP, like a minimum viable product. And the important thing that I think that gets ignored is the viable part. Like it has to be good enough. Um, yeah, I mean, if you have a hard deadline, you said it like that, and I've done this before. You you're at that deadline. It is time to release it. And when you look at something that you've made and it's just not viable, then you can't release it. And I mean, that's that's kind of a you know that kind of flies in the face of a hard deadline. But you know, that's the kind of decision that you have to make as a software developer. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. It's it's one of those posi- positions where you find yourself in where you have to say, you know, I failed on this. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I, I do agree that your first version should be viable, but I don't think it should be perfect. Right. Great point. Cool. Um, let's see. Do you have any any horror stories when it comes to submissions? Either you got approved, got terrible reviews at first, or you just sent it out for review and you got rejected a bunch of times. Anything like that? Um, you know, I don't call them horror stories uh, because I think it's just, I mean, for me, it's just part of doing business with a partner like mm-hmm. Apple. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not going to be able to control them. You know, the one thing I will say is they seem to kind of, I, I don't know what's going on with the Apple review people, but they don't seem to talk to each other. And in general, <laughs> when I submit something and it gets rejected, my immediate reaction is, oh, let me resubmit it. Like the exact same binary, just uh-huh. go back to Xcode, upload it again, just see what happens. I can start working on their feedback at that point, yep. but I might as well resubmit it. And man, probably 75% of the time, they accept that exact same binary the next time. Oh, that's a great, that's a great insight. Just, just ship it again. Ship it again. I mean, I, I think it's kind of bad. Like it's a, it's sort of a, a you know, it's not going to be good for Apple if everybody is doing this. Uh, it's going to create a lot of extra work. But man, if 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 they can't be consistent, then that's what we got to do. You know, we got to you know play the cards we're dealt. Right. Huh. You know, I think that's a that's a good mindset to have. Treating Apple like a partner. You can't control them. They can't really control you. And I guess you're kind of learning from each other. The only difference is they can, you know, completely say, screw you and take your app off the store and you can't exactly say, screw them. Yeah. But, you know, I think there are plenty of instances where, you know, Apple has learned from developers 
And like you said, a lot of use cases they couldn't even have predicted all of a sudden get baked in, like the flashlight, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's uh, that's definitely a good mindset and good advice to have. Yeah, you know, think of uh, think of the partnership between Apple and Google, and you know, early on, Google was highly integrated into the iPhone. I mean, mm-hmm. Maps was by Google, and then they just turned around and made Android, or they bought Android, right? Um, and and Apple's kind of like that with their developers. You know, they're your partner until they decide they're going to Sherlock your functionality and put it into the OS. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's it's kind of dog eat dog, and it's kind of you know David and Goliath, but. Um, you just that, that's another reason. Just don't put all your eggs in one basket. Um, just try to diversify and you know try lots of things. Cool. You know, I think that to kind of wrap up, we'd love to hear about what plans you have. I know you mentioned earlier that your site kind of had a big bump at the beginning of the uh, Swift hype over the summer during the beta version one. And it kind of tailed off as any any media hype does. And I guess, would you say you're kind of in the Paul Graham uh, trough of sorrow where after you have your initial hype, you think it's going to be a rocket ship, you get kind of uh, a little dip before you start making that slow, steady progress that I think defines good, um, good startups and good sites? Uh, I'm not familiar with that uh, expression, but you know, I mean, what we have is there was an, there was like you said an initial bump, yep. and then it fell back down, but not that much, and okay. then it just kind of has been slowly increasing over time, which I think is you know I agree that's like the sign of a healthy business, and for us, I I, I kind of think that it's really just about having more content. Mm-hmm. And uh, and a more variety of content. Not everybody wants to read tutorials. So, what we're kind of looking at doing now is we have the tutorials, we have the book, uh, we're working on the videos, and we're actually working on something kind of like an interactive course. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, so are a lot of people. You know, so the question is like, how is it going to be better? And I don't really have a good answer for that right now. So you know, we're kind of just in the design phases of that and. We're looking for partners and things like that. But I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, there's a steady growth and I'm happy with that. But, you know, we need to expand at other types of uh, products because everybody learns different. Yep. Cool. So we will obviously on Twitter and on the post for this uh, for this podcast, make sure to include links to all of Jameson's sites and keep you up to date on what he's bringing to the table. All right. Um, I want to thank Jamison Quave again of jamisonquave.com for coming on our podcast. Of course, my co-host Clay, and a shout out to Adam who couldn't be on this podcast, but hopefully on the next one. Jamison, thanks again. Sure. Thanks for having me. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. We will see you next week. With that, I want to leave off with a little continuity music. A few episodes ago. Clay played Feeling Good by Nina Simone, so I figured I would play a record that samples that recording. Here is New Day by Jay-Z and Kanye West. Yeah, uh.
And I'll never let my son have an ego You'll be nice to everyone wherever we go I mean I might even make him be Republican To everybody know he love white people And I'll never let him leave his college girlfriend And get caught up with the groupies in the whirlwind And I'll never let him ever hit the telethon I mean even the people dying in the world ends See, I just want him to have an easy life Not like easy life want them to be someone people like, don't want them to be hated all the time, just, don't be like your daddy that it never was, and I never let them ever hit a strip club, I learned the hard way, they ain't the place to get love, and I never let his mom move to LA, knowing she couldn't take the pressure, now we all pray, 